Hello and welcome to Two Boys, One Broken Air Conditioning, the show where we moved to the south and our air conditioning broke almost immediately. I'm your sweaty host, Matisse Van Rossum, and I'm joined tonight by Ben Sheets. Coming out of the rubbles of the hellish firescape, uh, ready to talk about some movies. Yeah, a movie. A movie. Um, Eugene is still having technical difficulties up in New York, so unfortunately he once again is not able to join us. So it's uh, just me and Ben tonight, and we're coming at you with a uh, hot, fresh review of Hereditary, which just came out a couple of weeks ago. The directorial debut of Ari Aster. Um, there's been quite a bit of buzz behind this film for the last few months. Uh, it premiered, um, in January on the festival circuit and they were calling it this generation's exorcist, a movie so scary that people were throwing up and leaving the theater and all of that good shit, which seems to be something that they do every couple of years. They'll always say that some new indie horror movie is the scariest movie in years. Yeah, the last time I really remember a marketing push this heavy was The Conjuring. The original Conjuring did a lot of that. Yeah. Uh, Whereas, like... Oh, this movie is the scariest movie since The Exorcist. People have been fainting in the theaters, yada, yada, yada. And like, I feel like it makes a little bit more sense for a movie like The Conjuring, which is like, you know, James Wan, and it's more of like a, like a popcorn horror movie. I was kind of surprised that this movie got the publicity that it did. I'm well, glad. I'm glad it did. Well, I I don't know if I 100 percent agree because I think it's horrifying to mass audiences, even though it's really obtuse a lot of the times. The horror is kind of universal. Like I know even my brother went to see it, and he was like, "This is the scariest movie I've ever gone." To. Well, I think that actually did a lot of good for this movie because this is only the fourth uh, A24 movie to get a wide theatrical release. Oh, really? The only other ones that have gotten uh, the same kind of release were The Witch in 2015, uh, Free Fire, which I have not seen, and uh, It Comes at Night last year. And then this one's adding to that list. And I think it owes a lot of that to the hype around it being, like, the scariest movie ever. Wasn't uh, Spring Breakers A24? Um, was that A24 or was that Annapurna? Oh, yeah, it might have been Annapurna. I get them mixed up sometimes. I mean, like, A24 is an offshoot of Annapurna. Yeah, So, yeah. I mean, it's basically the same. Yeah. Um, That's but, surprising yeah. to me, though. I, I always see the logo come up, so I assume they had more movies in wide... Well, yeah, that's it's specifically wide theatrical release. Like, I feel like now that I think about it, the most of the A24 produced movies that I've seen in theaters have been like in more uh, indie art house theaters, like well, the Oriental yeah. or the Downer back in Milwaukee. And that's the thing, too. We're in, you know, we were in Milwaukee, now we're in Durham. Both areas are somewhat city areas small cities yeah we'll get limited releases and not even realize that they're limited releases sometimes yeah i uh i was surprised to see that too just because i have seen so many a24 movies in theaters 
but I guess I hadn't thought about them being technically wide theatrical releases. Um, I'm I'm glad for this movie. It's been getting a lot of good hype. I thought it was really good. I I don't know if I would say that it's the scariest movie since The Exorcist, but it uh it definitely does atmosphere really well. Yeah, it's, I thought it it's, was it's pretty creepy. I thought it was, you know, at least as scary as The Exorcist. I really enjoyed there, I really enjoyed this movie. Oranges, though. Like I hate that as scary or scarier than The Exorcist thing though. Yeah, I I do too. The Exorcist, especially for its time, is very scary. Yes. But nowadays, you could argue that it's not as scary as, as well, it because was it's, upon release. It's set so many of the standards for horror in the decades since. Yeah, yeah. Sort of like we talked about last week with The Black Coat's Daughter. Um, also, I feel like I, well, both of us are kind of a bad sounding board for like a movie so horrifying that people were passing out in the theater because we watch horror movies on such a regular basis. Like I remember, uh, in the couple of weeks building up to the release of this movie, there was a, uh, like a like a JPEG going around where at some theater, like at an Alamo draft house or something, they hooked the entire audience up to heart rate monitors. Did you see that? No, I and didn't. They, and they leveled or they showed the, the image was the graph of the points in the movie when people's heart rates like went up most dramatically so you could see the really scary parts of the movie so they were doing all that kind of hype and there were definitely a couple of shocking moments in this uh yes. that will that we'll get into <laughs> but i i i don't know if i if my heart rate was ever really elevated much past normal, but I, like I'd said, like, I feel like I'm a really yeah, bad sounding board for we'll, that kind we'll of thing. We'll get into that a little bit more. I definitely agree, especially one particular part was shocking yes, more I than agree. anything else. And surprisingly, that was one of the lower points on, uh, on that, that graph. Really? I mean, it was, there were three main peaks and that was the first one, obviously, but it was the lowest of the three. And for me, that particular moment was the most shocking. That's yeah. the one that, that yeah. like I physically reacted to, yeah. to any sort of extent. But, I think I, I we'll get into it more, but I think the third act is the the scariest part of the movie for sure. But yeah, I think uh, it's really refreshing to see a movie this obtuse get a wide theatrical release and people just shower it with praise. Yeah, because a lot of times when you get such a big, I I almost want to say tentpole horror movie, you know, they're very accessible to the point yeah. where they're kind of dumb they're they're pop they're popcorn yeah exactly movie, you know you movies, look at yeah. even like Con the conjuring you know like especially the sequels but even the first one you know like it's a good it's a good movie it's a good movie but it's not the smartest movie no you know? it's much more accessible i agree uh obtuse is a good way to describe this movie because i I won't go so far as to say that I was confused during this movie, but until the end, 
I didn't know what was happening, like in a good way. They they wait a really long time to give you any sort of explanation behind the events that are occurring, and they leave a lot of it open to interpretation before they spell it out for you at the end. Yeah, well, I think it's really interesting because in comparison to like the Black Code Strader, where, you know, you're never sure if it's all in her head or there's actually demons. It, yeah. There's a similar thing in this movie. Yeah, I, you, I think so. You know, you're not sure if it's the mother just losing it after too many traumatic events. And I I think, yeah, I think they do more in this movie than the Black Coat's daughter to set up that doubt. Like, with, like how I was talking about last week with Black Coat's daughter, I didn't pick up on the the possibility of insanity until towards the end more like the third act but with this they set the precedent for that that it might just be insanity rather than supernatural events pretty early on i mean the the title alone hereditary it it has you know layered meanings but they establish early on that Tony Collette's mother, who has died prior, just prior to the events of this movie, uh, suffered from uh, like dissociative personality disorder, and that uh, Tony Collette's brother was schizophrenic, or they say he was schizophrenic and committed suicide when he was a teenager. So there's that. Uh, that question of like, well, mental illness uh, can often be passed down genetically. So is that what hereditary is referring to? Has Tony Collette and ha- and her children have they inherited this madness that her mother had? And then, of course, by the end, it, it's it's revealed that there's more to it than that. Yeah, I like that that there's. That there's sort of multiple layers to to what's happening, even though by the end they make it clear where they literally spell out for you exactly what has been happening this whole movie. But until that point, which is at the very end of the movie, you you know, it's kind of like, well, shit, what the fuck is happening here? And I thought that that was, was really effective. Cause yeah, and they even play it subtly at points, like... For example, the the father, when he's, like, emailing someone about his wife possibly going crazy later on in the movie, uh, he has a psychiatrist's uh, email address. So right. Apparently, he's a psychiatrist, you know, like... Or, or he knows, yeah, he knows somebody, is... yeah. Well, because it's established early on that in the last few years of her life, when her dementia was setting in, that there... That, her mother was living with them. So uh, they were sort of embroiled in dealing with that mental illness. And Tony Collette knows that obviously her brother had that history and you know, why he killed himself when he was younger. So there's there's always that question. And really, now that I think about it, I don't think anything that could be definitively viewed as supernatural happens until right before the third act when she goes to have the seance with the lady that she meets I, at the I, grief counseling. I think the first supernatural act we see is the uh, the, the paint falling over on her desk 
Uh, it looked like she knocked it over. Oh but yeah, she never, I thought I she thought she knocked it, it over. She Did she not? It. Yeah. I I totally thought she um, knocked it over. I didn't realize that at all. And it's 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 interesting because you know she never touched it, and what it covered was Joan's phone number. You know, oh, it was her card. Right. It was uh, you know, I trying I, to get her to call up Joan to get those events started. You know, now that you mention it, you're right. I didn't, to me, it looked like she knocked it over, so that didn't even register with me. But yeah, the fact that it fell over onto the piece of paper that Joan had given her uh, to contact, I thought that whole thing was dealt with. It it may be the most generic uh, aspect of the movie, like getting into the seance and shit like that, but I think the way that it was handled made it work really well in the context of the yeah, movie. Yeah, well, and the thing that really sold it for me is on its surface level, it was just a seance, but beyond that, like, they were trying to conjure Pyman to, yeah. you know, to be present, you know? It wasn't necessarily getting the the loved ones to be there there was right. more it sinister was, intent to it, it yeah but what i mean specifically is how in in a in a dumber movie the way that they would have set that up is tony collette is grief stricken after the death of her mother and then shortly thereafter her young daughter which we'll also get into so she would be looking up on the internet uh mediums and how to contact the dead because she's sad about it and she wants to talk with her loved ones that's how they would do it in a dumber movie but instead they have this whole angle where she goes to this grief counseling meeting and then she goes back but doesn't want to go in. So this woman sort of intercepts her car and is like, oh, I've, I lost my son and my grandson. If you need anybody to talk to, you know, here's my number. And then she runs into her at the art supply yeah. store. Well, and it's like, oh, I just I, you, this is going to sound crazy, but I met this medium who showed me how to contact my my uh, grandson or whatever. Like to have it set up through this sort of like twisty, turny, it, it feels like a much more natural uh, progression of events that I think was was really good. Yeah, well, and when they introduced it, too, I I was worried right before the art supply store scene mm-hmm. because they showed a mailbox with, like, a medium brochure going in the mailbox. Yeah. And they never referred to that again, which I thought was super weird. But when it happened, I know I, I, I thought so that, too. You know they were gonna go. Oh, this is the the generic possession introduction. Yep. You know? No, that that's what I thought too. It's kind of it's kind of like they they bait and switched us. Yeah. Because I mean, also the way that was shot, it's just like a door with the mail slot, and that like that flyer was sort of slipped on top of this other stack of mail that was coming through the mail slot. But then, like the way they cut that before and after, it doesn't really show whose door it is. Like it's assumed that it's uh, Tony Collette and her family's door, but I mean, it could have been Joan's door. I guess it was a good bait and switch for that reason, yeah. but it still felt a little weird. Well, no, I, I agree. I saw that and I was like, oh, they're just gonna take that angle. And then they didn't. And the decision to not go that easy, tried and true route 
uh, I think, really paid off in the long term. Oh, yeah, definitely. I I guess let's – before we start getting too much into that, we should give a a little bit more context. Uh, I don't want to go too much into detail because I think this movie uh, thrives on uh, its sort of obscurity. But I I like how, you know, it starts with them preparing for the grandmother's funeral and nobody's really that upset about it. Like even after the funeral, like when they get home, uh, Tony Collette says to Gabriel Byrne, who plays her husband, um, like, should I be sadder about this whole thing? And he's like, well, you should be whatever you are, like deal with your grief you know, in whatever way it comes to you, which is really a big theme of this film is how uh, you deal with grief. And we see the different ways that all of the people in the family deal with that, especially later on when the daughter dies uh, and the way that Tony Collette grieves for her daughter as opposed to the way she grieves for her mother and the way the son grieves as well. Uh, I think that that's uh, a really strong point of the movie too. Yeah, I definitely think uh, the exploration of grief is one of the strongest points in the movie. And I think you even get some representational stuff with some of the supernatural stuff as, you know, almost a reflection of their grief. Yeah, for sure. Um, You see that with, Tony Collette, especially in dream sequences, going in and yelling at the son about how she blames him for uh, the death of the daughter. You know? Right. Oh, man, that scene's crazy, too. And how she uh, says that she never wanted him and that she tried to induce miscarriage multiple ways when she got pregnant with him. Like, I thought that was really horrifying. Like, imagine being told by your mother that she tried to uh, abort you multiple times. And then there's the, the her her sleepwalking thing where she tells Joan about how several years prior she was sleepwalking and woke up standing over both of her children and all three of them were covered in paint thinner and she had a lit match like that that also sort of plays into the the mental illness and like is she really just crazy like she sleepwalks and she was trying to kill herself and her children in one of her sleepwalking episodes um and you made i think it was you as you or cleveland made a good point after we saw the movie about how the th- that particular dream sequence was shared between Tony Collette and uh, Alex Wolf, the son. In horror movies, it's so common for like something scary to happen, and bah, it's a dream, and it's yeah. it it feels like a cop out in a lot of horror movies. But in this, where they're both sharing the same dream and they don't realize it, that is uh, an angle that I've not seen before and I think that works really well and sort of plays into the, the supernatural thing. Yeah, it definitely validates the horror rather than just, you know, undoing whatever you do. Um, yeah, which exactly. Which I think is really, really a good thing. Because, I mean, especially in a movie like this where a lot of the horror 
is very psychological, and there's nothing wrong with psychological horror. It makes sense to utilize dreams mm-hmm. um, to sort of play out the horror, but too often in horror movies, it's like, oh, this is a dream, and then they wake up, and, ah, uh, did it really happen? Did it really not? And it's just been done so many times, but to to have have the shared dream state... Uh, it didn't bother me at all in that in that yeah sense. well the the cool thing about this movie is it does that and then it also does experiences where you know the characters are awake but other characters don't experience or see what they see you know yeah like unlike a dream sequence for example with alex wolf's character in school you oh, know yeah. he's experiencing things but not no one around him sees what he sees. It's not a dream, but it holds weight because, you know, he's awake and actually experiencing these things. Right, yeah. That that scene later on, uh, which they show in the trailer, where he uh, sees his own reflection kind of, like, smirking at him, and then later on uh, has, like, this spasm and, like, slams his face into the desk. Um, that... That scene is really well executed as well. Because, I mean, in the trailer, they present that as one scene, and then I was surprised that it was split up into two in the actual movie. But I like that. Yeah, I like, I, I I like that. Too. I like that escalation. Like, he sees himself or his reflection smiling at him. And he immediately gets up and leaves the room and goes and calls Gabriel Byrne because he fe- he thinks that he's being haunted. He thinks that there's a, a malevolent spirit after him. And then it's like, oh, well, is he crazy too? Like, is the is the schizophrenia or the dissociative personality disorder, has he inherited that from Tony Collette, who inherited it from her mom and all this stuff? And then we get the scene where he sort of has the fit and smashes his face into the desk and that that the way that they over the course of like 10 minutes sort of escalate that where beyond a reasonable doubt it is at that point something supernatural i think that that's really effective another thing that i want to talk about because i it was something that i was kind of that was kind of lost on me while I was watching the movie because Tony Collette is a is an artist who builds these uh, elaborate miniatures that she you know from stuff she sees in real life and she's working towards uh, having a gallery exhibition in several months and I was kind of wondering for a lot of the movie like what is the particular significance of that in the context of this movie because it's never given you know a, a an, an explanation i i guess but when you see things like the stuff that she's starting to build as the movie goes on and more things start happening uh like where she creates a diorama of the accident that killed her daughter it's like oh she's using that to compartmentalize her grief she's taking these things that are uh haunting her and constructing them on a small scale to try to like compartmentalize yeah them. and making them controllable exactly in respect and i think that's a really cool idea um did you notice actually uh after she made the diorama 
of the accident with her daughter. Um, they showed it a couple scenes later, and the the head of the daughter was missing. I did not notice that. Yeah. That's really cool. Yeah. Well, it, and it plays with that motif of losing a head that goes throughout the movie, and I think that's super cool. Well, yeah, because a lot of characters end up decapitated yeah. in this movie, so it becomes sort of a theme by the end. I feel like we should jump in and talk yeah, about let's, let's the, do the that. daughter scene. So. so, yeah, we've got this young daughter character who, uh, you know, is kind of is weird and kind of creepy, at least the way she's portrayed in the first few scenes of the movie. Um, she's got these ticks. She she makes this noise with her mouth. She's yeah. She's always going, and I I notice that they incorporate that sound into the score as the rest of the movie go on, goes on. Done by Colin Stetson, which is very fucking cool. That I didn't even pick up on until the the credits. Well, that's the thing too. The the soundtrack is pretty subtle throughout. It is. You know, like it's never flashy in any way. Which is surprising for Colin Stetson because he's such a virtuoso. Yeah. I remember remember hearing uh, a couple of months ago that he was doing the score, um, and then I totally fucking forgot about it. And I didn't think about it at all until the very last scene of the movie where the, the... the piece that was playing right before the credits and then that went into the credits, I was like, this sounds like Colin Stetson. And then, sure enough, in the credits, music by Colin Stetson. So that's a cool aside. He's fucking awesome. If you haven't listened to his music, you should check him out. But yes, the daughter. We we see early on that she was probably the closest to the grandmother out of everybody in the family. Uh, Tony Collette makes a point of talking about how, like, when she was born, uh, that, you know, the grandmother wouldn't let Tony Collette breastfeed her because she had to do it, and we even see a very eerie diorama of that later on, which is, once again, Tony Collette compartmentalizing that weird shit into something she can control. But so you've got that, and uh, then the little girl talks about how Grandma always wanted me to be a boy, uh, which at the time is weird, but then makes sense later on in the movie. She's she's just doing all this weird shit, like drawing these weird, creepy, childish pictures. And when she's in school, the the bird uh, crashes into the window and dies. And then after class, she goes outside and cuts its head off with a pair of scissors, which is foreshadowing. Um, she built her own little miniatures of like people kneeling. Yeah, kind of. all of all of this weird stuff. And I, based on the trailer and the way they were building the movie, I thought that she was going to be a much more central part of the movie. And I suppose she is thematically, but they establish early on that she has a uh, a nut allergy. She's always eating candy. And her parents keep asking, like, that doesn't have nuts in it, does it? We don't have the EpiPen. And then uh, Alex Wolf's character goes to uh, a high school party later on uh, under the pretenses that's like a school event. And Tony Collette makes him take his sister. 
<laughs> and right when they get into the party, they do the shot of like these girls in the kitchen baking and just chopping up a shitload of pecans. An like they absurd amount of nuts. Like they show a shot of it, and you see that, and it's like, oh, the little girls here. There's pecans. Ah, uh, something's gonna happen. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I knew it's there was gonna be like a Chekhov's heavy, yeah, know, Chekhov's gun situation. Thing. Seeing them cut the nuts in like an absurd amount almost made me think, oh, hey, that knife's gonna be used at some point. I didn't think about that at all. I was totally focused on the nuts. I thought it was funny. Cleveland thought the nuts were weed. He thought they were just (laughs) chopping up a bunch of weed to make, like, some space cake or whatever. So Alex Wolf's character is trying to, like, smoke with this uh, girl that he's super into. So to, like, get rid of his sister... He's like, oh, they've got cake. You love chocolate or whatever. Like, go have a piece of cake. I'll be right back. Not knowing that there are nuts in the cake. So the sister eats the cake and she starts having an allergic reaction and her throat starts closing up. And Alex Wolf is stoned and tries to drive her to the hospital. And he's driving down this road. And in her panic, the little girl opens the window and sticks her head out the window to try to get more air, I guess, and gets decapitated by a telephone pole on the side of the road. That's that's the interesting thing, because in the road was like... It was like a dead dog or something. A dead dog, but I'm pretty sure it was decapitated as well i couldn't tell it it went by fast so i can't definitively say but it wouldn't surprise me it very well could be honestly it wouldn't have even surprised me if like the cult or whatever like had placed that there well it very well could be because when they're on their way to the party earlier they pass that telephone pole and it has that symbol carved into it, the one that Tony Collette has a necklace of that her mother was also wearing uh, that starts to appear more and more later. So it's like you drive, they drive past that and you see it and it's like, oh, well, that has to mean something. Uh, but I didn't know what at the time. And it took me so by surprise when the sister smacked her head on the oh, pole and yeah. it knocked it's her head off. Like absolutely the most shocking. Oh my scene god! In the movie. You you me and Cleveland all had the exact same reaction. We all like pulled up into our seats and like put our hands over our mouths, which I thought was really funny. It, it hit us all exactly the same. But holy fucking shit! Yeah, like. I expected something to happen. Like, there's already this shit building up with her having the allergy attack, and it's like, is he going to get her to the hospital in time, or is she going to asphyxiate? And I was so focused on that that I did not think at all that she was going to get her head knocked off by a fucking telephone pole. Yeah, no, it's the last thing I had on my mind. No, honestly, oh my God. Like, in a weird way... Through its shock, it becomes horrifying, you know, like... Oh, it, oh absolutely. Um, it, I would say, like, the third act gets pretty crazy, but I think that that, for me, is the standout most horrifying moment. And not supernatural at all, you know, just like an accident. Uh, well, arguably uh, set up by the cult or whatever, but still, like... And then the way that it's 
dealt with. Like, we just see her head hit the pole, and then it just, like, Alex Wolf like, slams on the brakes, and he stops, and he just, he can't turn around. We get the shot where he starts to look up into the rearview mirror, and then just looks straight forward again, and he just slowly drives home, you know, parks the car, and goes and climbs into bed, and goes asleep, presumably with his sister's decapitated corpse still sitting in the back seat, because then it cuts to the next morning, and we just hear Tony Collette just, like, wailing. Yeah. Just absolutely traumatized. I found the whole Alex Wolf thing after that really well done, because, you know, it's, yeah. it's a very accurate depiction of you know, shock. Yeah, that's that's totally it. Like, you'd think, oh, why don't you call the police? Or why don't you, like, stop? And he leaves the head there on the side of the road, too. And he just drives home with her body in the back seat and just leaves it there because he's totally in shock. And it's like, that's how some people deal with grief. It's like you experience something so horrible that your brain just completely shuts down and you dissociate and i thought that that was another really well executed thing that they did because it would be so easy to you know play that scene up more in the moment to deal with it in a more realistic manner i think makes it scarier yeah and i think that's really emphasized through uh, Tony Collette's wailing once he wakes up because like man oh man Tony Collette oh my just god has some She's of the so most good in this movie unbridled you know unflinching portrayals of like grief and- yeah to to just have her in that next shot just like writhing on the floor just like screaming saying things like i just i want to die i want to die and to have that juxtaposed with how unaffected she is by her mother's death uh i think that works really well and then how they do the the cut to at the funeral when she's still just wailing and that shot too is really cool which they show in the trailer where they pan down into the ground and uh like everything that's happening at the funeral is in real time but i love how they have the grass like waving in the wind uh time lapse like sped up to have that together and to just like pan down into the dirt like under the ground that was really fucking cool there's so many like really striking shots in this movie yeah yeah it, like, visually like it's amazing they do some cool tilt shift photography that uh you know kind of replicates the miniatures mm-hmm. in real life which oh, i, I love was that really shit cool. too like there there are a few shots in this movie of like their house that i i couldn't quite tell if it was just a real wide shot or if it was an actual miniature. I think there are some of those shots where it was a miniature. And to to play with that, considering that she does these, like, hyper-realistic miniatures and how they have one of the, the, the first shots where it's, like, on the diorama of her own house and it punches in on uh, Alex, Alex Wolf's room. room 
and then it sh- and then we see Gabriel Byrne come through the door and so it's like yeah they do a lot of that shit they do a lot of those mo- of shots in this movie where they have the room from like a a really wide shot from a distance where it you know it's like it's supposed to replicate the miniatures which I thought was was really cool. I mean, they they shot they built this house on the soundstage. I mean, yeah, which is how they did that. Uh, but it's it's really effective. So you've got this constant interplay between her miniatures and then the real thing, which you know, going back and forth, I think is is, is really effective. It worked super well for me. Yeah, I. Throughout the whole movie, there were so many elements of cinematography that I thought were really cool. I thought the the day night flashes. Yes, really I was nice. such a fan of that. Where it's just the shot of the house, and it'll just smash cut from day to night or night to day. That shit, I was so about that. Like the the way they dealt with passage of time in this worked really well. You know, I think that kind of plays into the whole grief thing too. Like when you're grieving you can sometimes have a really poor sense of time, like how quickly or how slowly time is passing, and they do a lot of that great shit. Um, Just overall, visually, this movie is excellent. Um, Just some really, like, weird, creepy, striking, surreal imagery. Like when uh, when she's having the shared dream with Alex Wolf and she goes into his room and he's covered in ants, which we see... uh, Earlier, when they after we see her like crying and screaming when she's discovered her daughter's death, and then they just do a hard cut to the daughter's head on the side of the road, totally brutalized and you know missing covered and, and just bugs. covered covered in ants, like that. That was the best fucking way they could have handled that, rather than to show the damage like right in the scene when it had happened to sort of like move on from that and get in a little ways and then show it in the like in the light of day well it's yeah it's so much more brutal in the daylight when it's been rotting like it's one of the most shocking things i've seen in a movie well yeah because at that point you don't expect it anymore you expect them to show it at the time it happens and when they don't it's like oh okay i guess they're just not gonna show it and then to have it progress a little bit and then to out of nowhere cut to that shot, like I said, not at nighttime but in the light of day so you can see everything and to just hold on it, that's the fucking scary shit. Like that's that's the horrifying thing to see the the aftermath of the accident, you know, somewhat after the fact. I thought that was really excellent. Yeah, I thought that was really well done, too. Uh, how much do you want to go into the last act? Because I kind of want to walk on eggshells a little bit. I don't want to spoil too much. I mean, obviously, we'll have a spoiler bit for the very end. Yeah, well, I I think we've talked about the build-up pretty well. I'd say let's go ahead and give a, a hard spoilers section. I mean, if you listen to the show, you know we always pretty much go into spoilers. Um, This is a movie that you should see before you listen to the rest of this. If you have not seen it at this point, we've already spoiled quite a bit. But I would like I would like to talk about the the last fifteen twenty minutes and the way uh, a lot of the stuff that it sets up beforehand starts coming together at that point. Sure. Yeah. There's. 
is a hell of an escalation, <laughs> right. to say the least. So after Tony Collette goes to the seance with her new friend Joan, who she meets at the grief counseling, uh, you know, Joan supposedly contacts the spirit of her grandson we see that a little bit and then she gives tony collette like these papers and she's like this is the ritual like if you want to contact your daughter read this make sure all of your family's in the house and you know then it, it works it works you've seen it work uh, so we have that scene where, well, first we have the scene where Gabriel Byrne is sleeping and we hear Tony Collette in the other room reciting some sort of incantation. And then she wakes up Alex Wolf and Gabriel Byrne and, you know, brings them down into the dining room and is like, oh, th- this works. It sounds crazy. It sounds crazy. I'm not crazy though. Like it works, it works, it works. And, uh, we see a little bit of that, some some supernatural stuff, like some things moving around and the, the candle igniting and stuff like that. But uh, Gabriel Byrne, as the straight man, uh, as the true straight man in this movie, still refuses to acknowledge that anything crazy is going on, which could be obnoxious in some horror movies where you're always like why all this stuff's happening why are you refusing to acknowledge that something's going on but i actually commend the decision to do that because realistically as an adult and you know that like oh ghosts aren't real or whatever this supernatural shit doesn't happen you would try your fucking damnedest to rationalize it as much as possible yeah and when there's a history of mental illness in your wife's family, of course you're going to assume that she's crazy. Well, yeah, the funny part about that whole scene was when the candle like ignited really big, like first thing he does is look under the table. Right, of he, course. You can't to, believe that. Well, no, yeah. It's, it's well, ghost, Tony yeah. Collette even does that too in the séance with Joan when uh the the chalkboard is writing stuff on itself and or the and the glass is moving around. Like that's the first thing she does. She, you know, checks under the table. Like is there any weird mechanism that's doing something? Which I mean, of course makes a lot of sense. Yeah. It's the first thing you should check for. <laughs> but uh, as as things start to escalate, and we don't have to get into too too many specifics. Tony Collette finally decides that something is wrong. Like it, things are not going the way they're supposed to. She's seen her daughter's uh, sketchbook uh, flip through its pages and draw these pictures of Alex Wolf, like with his eyes crossed out. Which and shit. is a weird motif that happened a few times in the movie, having people with their eyes crossed out. I know in Joan's apartment, she had a little shrine, unbeknownst to Tony Collette, of. Alex Wolf's character with his eyes crossed out next yeah, with to the, some of Charlie's little miniatures. Yeah, that was a motif that I don't think ever got too much explanation, but it didn't bother me too yeah, much. Yeah, I, I figured it was just something like, you know, eyes are the window to the soul or something. Some, yeah, you know? something something like that. It's a, it's a creepy visual motif that they can play with. Yeah. But the scene where she goes to Gabriel Byrne and... She's like, the way to end this is we have to burn this sketchbook. 
and I know it'll I, – I tried to burn it myself and my sleeve caught fire. I know it's going to take me with it, but please, I need you to throw this into the fire. I'm too scared to do it myself. And he has all of this resistance because, of course, he thinks she's just crazy. He's like, I'm not going to indulge. I'm not, not going to enable her insanity. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to enable this bullshit anymore. So finally she grabs it herself and throws it into the fire and then he catches fire. I thought that was really great too. Just immediately he's just engulfed in flame. And you can see that a little bit in the trailer. You don't see that it's him specifically – well, I guess this is after she goes up into the attic and she discovers her mother's uh, headless corpse up in the attic covered in flies and sees that weird symbol uh, painted on the wall. And she goes through her mom's stuff and finds all of these books on spiritualism and stuff and finds a highlighted page about summoning uh, King Payman one of the eight kings of hell or whatever and it's and we see in that book that it specifies that payman identifies as a male so he covets a male host so it's like oh okay that's why the grandmother wanted charlie to be a boy instead yeah, of a girl and they do a lot of really subtle things with that during that scene when she's discovering going through the box one of the boxes has a bunch of floor mats and as she's going through them you know she realizes that they're like the same ones as joan had right but also there's one that says charles that has a symbol next oh, to it. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. You're you know? totally right. And I was well, like, yeah, when, that makes a ton of sense. When she goes to Joan the first time, she sees that doormat, and she's like, my mom used to make doormats exactly like that. And Joan's just like, oh, really? No way. And we, and we see the photo albums where her mother and Joan are together and participating photos of these weird rituals. I, I thought the photo album was cool, but... They were kind of silly, some of them. Like when the grandma's being like uh, showered with gold doubloons. I mean, <laughs> I mean, yes, but that that I didn't think of it. I mean, yes, it's silly, but it didn't feel out of place to me because, of course, like anybody who is not involved in a cult sees things that a cult is doing and is like, well, that's fucking stupid. Well, and that's the thing. It, they all seem all the pictures seem so ritualistic. Right. And, and it didn't bother me. And too we much. see we see in the book that like King Payman is the god of mischief and wealth or whatever. So it's to it's to be assumed that this cult is worshiping him uh in order to gain material wealth and stuff like that, which I think is when it comes to demonic cult worship stuff is kind of refreshing cuz normally it's like about ascension or apotheosis or whatever being possessed, but it's like, no, this cult just wants money and power and stuff like that. So they're they're praying to a, a, a god of of wealth and stuff like that. I actually did a little bit of research earlier today, not uh, n nothing uh, too substantial, but the symbol that we see all over the place is actually the symbol associated with 
Payman. So they didn't, that's not something that Ari Aster made up. He actually did a little bit of research into what he was doing. So I thought that was a yeah, cool Yeah, that's touch. really cool. And it makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's something that, like, not many, if anyone in the audience would know immediately. No, too. no of course not. That's just one of those. It works so well. It's like, what, it's like a little Easter egg, you know? If you, yeah. des- if you, des- if it's something you know about or you decide to look into it more, you see, like, oh shit, you know, they actually did some research into well, what they're yeah, talking about. Well, yeah, and that's about. the thing. Like, in a hackier film, it would have just been, like, an upside down cross. Right, or a pentagram or yeah. something, or, or something particularly satanic-looking. But, you know, no, they did their research, which I can uh, I can commend greatly. And what I like, too, is that they establish earlier in the film that Toni Collette was estranged from her mother at the time that she had her son, Alex Wolfe. So, as she says, he could she could never get her hooks into him. But she came around more when the daughter was born. So, from the, the cult perspective, she was never able to perform any sort of ritual on Alex Wolfe to make him the host of King Payman. So, she had to do it with the daughter which they establish at the end when they they reveal that uh, Charlie was the host of payment, so they had to kill her physical body so they could transfer his spirit into Alex Wolf. So I thought that w- that all tied together really well, and that sort of escalation in the last fifteen minutes after she burns the book, and at that point I assume. Uh, becomes possessed because we get that fucking awesome, really subtle shot of Alex Wolf waking up in the middle of the night and his room is really dark and it took me a second to notice it, but it's like, wait a second, is that somebody like up on the ceiling in the corner? Well, before that, we see her like almost like crawling no dude before that did you not notice that like there's it like i said it took me a second because it's so subtle but that wide shot uh where he like wakes up and he sits up in bed and he's like looking around and out the window tony collette is on the ceiling in the corner above his bed but it's so dark you can barely see her it's just like it it took me it took me several seconds to notice it i probably wouldn't have if the shot had been shorter but it's a long shot so it sits on it and like the subtlety of that like a a dumber movie would have made her much more apparent there in the corner and it's then that he turns to start looking over his shoulder that we see her like scurry across the ceiling and out of the shot yeah but she was there before that and when i noticed i was like oh my god that's so good like that's so good that they keep that so subtle and then you know he goes downstairs and she's up on the ceiling much more noticeable and there's the weird naked dude in the corner and uh i found all the the naked cult members super creepy i did too i i found them almost a little bit out of place but their, visually, their maniacal grins really sold it. For visually, me. it worked really well for me. Like not they're knowing if they're 
Well, and also it like raises the questions like how do they get there? Like, you know, are they demons? Are they zombies? Or like, are they just the cult members? Whatever, you know, that whole thing is really nice. Yeah. Well, they do reuse a few of the people that were at the funeral at the beginning of the movie. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Where there's the shot where Charlie turns, where she's standing over the coffin and she turns and there's that dude standing by the wall like grinning at her. Yeah. That was the dude who was standing in the doorway, right? Yeah, when yeah. I Okay, I thought so. That That was another cool thing too at the funeral where... Tony Collette's like, I didn't realize my mom had this many friends. Like, I've never met most of you. And then by the end, you realize, like, oh, well, that's her cult. Like, yeah. that's, that's the cult that she's in. But another thing that I thought was really fucking creepy was when Alex Wolf goes up to the attic uh, and he closes the door, and we hear, like, the banging for a few seconds, and then it cuts, and Tony Collette is, like, on the ceiling, just smashing her head into the into the hatch door. Yeah, well, they go out of their way to show, like, them using a big pole to bring down the ladder to right, open that up. Right. So you just assume that she's using the pole to exactly, just the, exactly. the ceiling, and then they show it, and it's so effective it's creepy as you don't expect it to be shown like that and then uh when he finds the body of his grandmother in the corner decapitated much like charlie and then he hears the the sound and we see tony collette like high up in the air in the attic like methodically like sawing off her own head with a garrote or like a piano wire or something that is fucking well, horrifying there's a piano wire because uh on the first floor you see an upturned piano uh i didn't in notice one of that. the shots yeah i didn't notice that that, um, that was very fucking creepy i yeah. i was a big fan of that um, as well and to just have Alex Wolf gets so terrified that he just dives through the window and kills himself. Yeah. And then to have him immediately possessed by Payman, and then he goes up into the treehouse where his sister liked to sleep, and then we have that the 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 final scene with all of the people up there worshiping this like mannequin altar that has uh i what i really liked is that it, the it has charlie's decapitated head on it which it took me a second to to you know connect those dots cuz it had been such a long time in the movie since we'd seen that yeah i thought that was fantastic the fact that all of the family all of the family's bodies are knelt down in front of it. Oh as yeah, well. the grandma's body and Tony Collette's headless body all, you know, sort of prostrated before the altar. And then they put the, the crown on Alex Wolf's head. And then they explain the whole thing, which is one of my very few problems with the movie is it felt almost like they didn't trust the audience enough to get everything that was happening because they were being so abstract with it that I, they just kind of felt like they had to spell it out. They they made it almost they made that that little brief monologue almost ritualistic, which helped it a lot, but I don't think they 
pushed that quite far enough because they're it's it's somebody off camera explaining to Alex or Payman like what's happening like you're Payman the eighth one of the eight kings of hell we had to kill your female body so we could transfer you into this male body blah 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 and it felt too much like they were directly addressing the audience. Like, you don't know what's going on at this point, so I'm just going to tell you, which, I mean, is is kind of okay, because it really is very obscure up until that point. And I don't know if I would have gotten it if they hadn't explained it to me, but I think they could have done a better job of... Uh, showing rather than telling in that last act like what was going on specifically rather than having to have it explained in a monologue right before the credits yeah i i wasn't too bothered by it i i agree it could have been more ritualistic for a lot of it you know like it's not that it explained everything it's that it filled in the gaps because i feel like this movie is so obtuse that like everyone will pick up on like half to two-thirds yeah. of what's going on no i agree and that exposition will fill in the gaps that they didn't pick up because well, other people will pick up different things right up and up until that point a lot of what has happened prior is very open to interpretation and with that little you know explanation at the end it doesn't leave much open to interpretation it's basically like this is what's been going on this is what happened Considering the execution of everything up till that point, it doesn't bother me too much, but I think it would have been more effective if they had maybe been just a touch less obscure prior to that and had revealed a little bit more um, just visually in what was happening. Like I said, showing, not telling, and then it would have negated the need for that explanation at the end. And it might have left a little bit more open to interpretation, a little bit more to mull over. But as it stands, it sort of is like, okay, here's very straightforward what happened, and then you can go back and look at the things that have happened prior and connect those dots yourself. So in yeah. that in so in that sense it it still works. That's why it worked for me is because like, even though it really clarifies things directly and strongly at the end, like, a lot of the movie was still obtuse to the point yeah. where, it, like, even days later, I'll be thinking about, you know, how little subtle details meant something for the story. Yeah. You know, like, everything is very tightly constructed for sure. in this narrative. Um, I mean, yeah, it's it's very it's all very deliberate. It doesn't seem so until the end, but once you have the explanation, you can go back and examine all of those little details throughout the rest of the movie and see how they fit into the puzzle that is revealed in its entirety at the end. So in that sense, it does still work. I just wish it had been a little bit less just directly explanatory. Yeah. I felt like I when the credits were rolling, I just kind of felt like, okay, well, that makes sense, but did did you really have to like just 
just tell me? Well, you know, that's the thing, too. You know, like, Paimon has taken over Alex Wolf's body at that point. The explanation they give is kind of what you would say to Alex Wolf and not Paimon himself. Right, exactly. And that's the biggest problem I have with it. I, I agree. I didn't mind too much of the exposition dump because it's semi-ritualistic, but it just felt off that, like... Like, why would you have to explain this to Paimon himself? Like, wouldn't he know? Like, like, is there... Is there amnesia when it comes to him taking over a new host? I kind of thought the same thing, too. I guess what it really comes down to for me, the crux of it, is that there are no real exposition dumps in the movie other than that. You could argue that when she goes to that first grief uh, counseling uh, group meeting that her explanation is kind of uh, a, an exposition dump but in the context of the scene it makes sense like she's in a room full of strangers and she's opening herself to them she's she's venting so it doesn't feel yeah. li- it does it feels like her character is explaining it to the rest of these characters well, and, the and not thing. like they're explaining it to the audience. Whereas the monologue at the end feels like they're explaining it to the audience and not to the character. You know what I mean? Yeah, well, and the thing is, too, they have a decent amount of like direct exposition in this movie, but I think it's done to foreshadow things that happen later yeah. in the movie. The the problem with the end scene is it's going back and explaining stuff that happened right. earlier in the movie. Cuz in, in And it doesn't it doesn't not work. It just could have been It could have been ha- it could have been handled better. a little yeah. bit better, I think. Uh cuz like in other horror movies that would be in the same kind of vein, you'd have the scene where uh, the family or whoever goes to like a professor of demonology or an expert or something where we get that big exposition dump in something like Sinister, you know, where Ethan Hawke gets the professor on the phone. He's like, oh, that's the symbol of Bagul. He's a My demon. My name is James D'Onofrio. Yeah, I'm, I'm Vincent, Vincent D'Onofrio, D'Onofrio and uh, there, there's a demon and blah, 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 all of this stuff. And this movie is smarter than that it gets the information to the audience across in a way that feels more natural where it doesn't feel like they're giving you information for the sake of you knowing what's going on and the closest it comes to that is the very end which is what kind of took me out of it by that point the movie's already over so it's like in the grand scheme of things, it's not that big of a deal. Like I said, it makes it easier so you can go back and like put together the tiny little well, subtle and, details. You know, for such a wide mainstream release, like it almost feels necessary. You know, you know? I would I wonder if they added that after a test screening of an early f- version of the film where they kept it very obtuse. And then the audience was like, 
I don't understand that. What was going on? Well, it wouldn't surprise me too much because all that dialogue was off screen. You know? Exactly. They didn't have any of it shot. It's just, yeah, it's just a long shot of Alex Wolf's face, and we hear that explanation off camera, which I think was a good way to do it. I, I enjoyed that, so we get this long reaction shot of Alex Wolf. I think... If that same explanation had come, like, 30 minutes earlier in the movie, it would have infuriated me. Whereas having it at the very, very, very end, seconds before the credits roll, it just kind of bothered me a little bit. I'm much more willing to forgive it, because why would you put an exposition dump at the very end of your movie. You know, it feels more deliberate. It feels more purposeful. I just wish that it had been executed in a way where it didn't feel so much like it's the filmmaker explaining to the audience what is happening. If they had, if they had handled it the way they did other exposition things happen in the movie where it feels more, relevant to the characters learning new information yeah, if, if it felt like they were talking directly to payman rather than or alex wolf rather than payman well if they were talking to payman rather than alex wolf it would have felt better i think well because at, right now it felt like they were explaining to alex wolf character that he's payman oh yeah know? okay no yeah I, I get what you're saying yeah um, i know i i agree with that i agree with that but yeah, uh, any final thoughts on Hereditary? No. I mean, at this point, we have spoiled the entire movie. <laughs> but if you haven't seen this movie and you're still listening at this point, like, go see it while well, it's and, still in theaters. And the thing about like, it's it worth too seeing. is this is one of those movies where I think it would actually benefit on multiple watches. So just because you sure. hear some spoilers in this, don't think... It'll ruin the experience for no, you. No, I think I think I think it'll ac- actually help some of it. Um, I think you'll pick up a lot uh, going into this movie, knowing how it ends. Obviously, that's not the ideal way to see a movie like this. But if you're still listening at this point and haven't seen the movie, definitely go see the movie. Like it's worth your time. It gives me, in terms of atmosphere and build. Uh, and I, I know a lot of people have been saying this, and we even talked about it after we saw it. It, it It's uh, similar to The Witch in that way, where there's this really slow escalation of dread uh, and creepy shit where it's centered around like a core group of characters, a family – that is trying to cope with weird shit that's starting to happen. In terms of plot, incredibly different from The Witch. But I think it will give you, if you've seen The Witch, it'll give you the same kind of vibes in terms of its tone. Yeah, definitely. In a good way, in a good way, yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's very atmospheric. Um, a lot of the horror is much more direct, I would say, than The Witch yeah, um, there's not a single jump scare in this movie, though. Not no, one. No. And there were multiple moments when they could have done jump, jump scares. There were multiple moments where I was expecting a jump scare. A well, lot of them. And then they chose not to. And that is very commendable, yeah. always. There's a lot of scenes in this movie that I would say are some of the most 
horrifying movie scenes I've seen in years too in theaters. Another thing that I think is uh, is noteworthy about this movie is that like in terms of actual violence, there's very little. But when it is utilized, they don't shy away from it. Yes. <laughs> like in terms of in terms of the horror, a lot of it is like atmospheric, psychological. There's very little blood and gore, but the couple of times that there is, it's like very front and center. Like when we see the little girl's head on the side of the road or when Tony Collette is cutting her head off with the piano wire. It's like that's how you do violence in a movie like this, in a subtle movie. Don't shy away from it. Just use it sparingly. It makes it much more effective. Yeah, honestly, like it made it stand out as some of the most shocking things I've seen in a movie, particularly with the little girl's decapitated head, because they give it a little bit of space after it happens uh, in terms of when they show it in the movie. But when they show it, it's brutal. It is. And it's not like... It's not startling in the sense that it's like a jump scare, but it's startling just in, like, you know, the approach. Like how just all of a sudden we see this brutalized, decapitated head covered in ants, or we see Tony Collette just very methodically just cutting and slowly cutting her fucking head off with the piano wire. It's, uh, yeah, it's extremely effective. Like, that's how you do violence in a subtle horror film, in a slow-build horror film. Use it. At key moments when it's going to be most successful, that's how you avoid your audience being desensitized to it by the times that you need it. I can I can give this movie you know big ups for that. You know, just across the board, this movie is done really well. The acting is fucking phenomenal. There's not a weak link in the movie. Like the standouts for sure are Tony Collette and Alex Wolf, um, but. You know, Gabriel Byrne does a great job, too, even though his character is just, like, the straight, logical, rational character. Um, The girl who plays Charlie, Millie Shapiro, I guess this is her first role, because they give her an an introducing credit. I thought she was incredible. I think she does a great job, too. Uh, I'm I'm curious to, to see where she goes from here. I have a feeling she's gonna be typecast in horror movies. Um, cause she's kind of weird looking. Yeah. Well, uh, <laughs> it's funny. She, she kind of looks like the girl from A Quiet Place, the deaf girl. A little bit. To the point where when I saw A Quiet Place, I had seen the trailers for Hereditary and I thought they were the same girl for a minute. I feel like they have very similar names too, actually. Oh, yeah, same initials. Millicent Simmons is the girl from A Quiet Place, and Millie Shapiro is the girl from Hereditary. <laughs> so, yeah, that that they do kind of look a little bit alike, uh, so I think that's a, a, a good connection to make. But, um, yeah, unless you have anything else, uh, I think we should go ahead and jump into ratings. Yeah, let's rate this. I'll, I guess I'll go first. Yeah, go uh, for it. This movie really blew me away. I wasn't sure what to expect going into it you know when they hype it up 
as the scariest movie since The Exorcist, or scarier than The Exorcist, or yada, yada, yada. I always come in with a little bit of skepticism, because that's kind of a trope at this point, going in and advertising your movie like that. But this movie is really effective at its horror. I thought it was pretty incredibly uh, restrained, in a lot of it, uh, and surprisingly obtuse in its approach. I thought the acting across the board was really fantastic. The eye for detail was really fantastic, oh, yeah. and unlike anything else I've seen this year. All of the cinematography was really good. The soundtrack was phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Honestly, this is my favorite movie I've seen this year. Um, I think it's just fantastically done. Um, I feel like it's one of those movies that'll get better on repeat viewings because there's so many little details in it that you might miss the first time. Um, but yeah, I'm gonna give it a five out of five. I thought it was phenomenal. I thought it was fucking fantastic. Yeah, I, um, I can, I can pretty much agree with that. Um, I, I really appreciate the subtlety. I went into this with a fair amount of skepticism as well, just because like the way it was received, I was almost expecting it to let me down. I went into it very excited and like willing to enjoy it. And I did, I, I liked it a lot. I don't know if I can call it my favorite movie of the year so far, but it's definitely in my top five. Um, I think, I think some of the other movies I've seen this year have had more of a lasting impact on me, but I 100% agree that I think this is going to get better on repeat watches and I'm looking forward to going and watching it again, knowing all of the things that I've picked up on the last couple of days. There's, it it is very, uh, obtuse, um, in, in the sense that, I'm glad we waited a couple of days to record this episode and talk about it because I think if we had uh, recorded right after we saw it, I would have had much less to say because there's a lot to unpack uh, just in terms of the story and the visuals and what things mean. You know, it's it's a movie that you kind of have to ruminate on for a little while and uh, I appreciate it a lot for that, and I'm looking forward to seeing what Ari Aster does after this, if he's going to stick with horror, or if he's going to branch out and do other things, but um, I'm looking forward to whatever he does next. I'm going to give it a uh, 4.5 out of 5. Uh, so between the two of us, that'll give Hereditary an average rating of 4.75 or we'll round that up to 4.8 pods out of five um check this movie out if you haven't seen it it's definitely worth your time especially if you enjoy really tense atmospheric slow burn horror movies because i know i do um well that'll bring us to the end of our episode just like we promised we're going to be coming at you next week with a full-length episode our first one in a while we are uh since it is june uh we're going to be doing a little bit of a uh 2018 horror uh catch-up episode and check out some of the horror movies that we have missed um, we're gonna be indulging our masochistic sides 
and watching some movies that are guaranteed to be pretty fucking bad. We've watched most of the good 2018. <laughs> we've seen pretty. Movies. I feel like we've seen pretty much all of the good ones um, at this point. Um, I think what we're planning on for next week is uh, Insidious Chapter Four, Winchester, and Unsane. Uh, the only one of those I'm expecting to possibly enjoy is Unsane because Steven Soderbergh is a competent director. Um, so I'm I'm a little bit afraid for uh, what we're going to be bringing on the next episode. But you can expect our mid-year 2018 catch-up next week. Hopefully by that time we will have the whole crew back together. But uh, if not, it will definitely be uh, Ben and I. So um, you can look forward to that. If you like the show, you can leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you download your fine podcasts. We really appreciate you taking a few seconds out of your day to do that if you have not done already. You can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at PodPeoplePod. And uh, be sure to check out our Letterboxd page, where we have uh, a comprehensive list of all of the movies we have talked about on this show and are continuing to add to our future watch list. If you have any recommendations, things you'd like to hear us talk about on the show, um, uh, hit us up in some form or fashion, and we will add those movies to our watch list. Uh, you can also contact us directly at uh, podpeoplepod at gmail.com with any recommendations, questions, anything of that nature. Uh, you can follow me personally on Twitter at Mr. Van Awesome. Uh, ben, would you like to plug anything? Uh, yeah, check me out at Mr. Sheets on Twitter. Um, and please uh, hit us up if uh, you've seen Eugene. He's having trouble with his uh, cyberpunk penis and his hook hand. Yeah, he's having a really hard time. Donate to his GoFundMe at um, Eugene Cyberdong at GoFundMe or something like that. I don't know. I didn't take the time to think that out. <laughs> <laughs> if you are a gamer, you're into video games, be sure to follow Light Arc Studios on Twitter and YouTube. We are chugging away at our upcoming horror RTS, It Stares Back, and hopefully in the next few months we will have a demo and be launching our Kickstarter, so if you want to support us or you're just into video games and see what we're working on, uh, check that out, Light Arc Studios. I believe that's everything. The show is produced and scored by Ben and edited by yours truly. And you can look forward to our 2018 catch-up next week. And until then, stay hey, away <laughs> Stay away from your family. Because <laughs> that shit's hereditary. Ah.